When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Fish Stripes Live, off-season edition number three. My name is Isaac Azut, and we have a very, very special guest for you guys tonight. The voice of the Marlins has heard on 940 Wins, Glenn Geffner. Glenn, thank you so much for joining us, man. How are you? I'm doing great, Isaac. Thank you for having me on tonight. Of course, of course. So the first you know, breaking news that we sort of have today is the Miguel Rojas extension. Two years, it looks like it's an addition to the one year that he had already for the 2022 season. So he'll be here to at least 23. What are your thoughts on the captain staying at short for the next couple of years? Look, I think it's great news. Miggy wants to be here. The Marlins want to have him here. You think about it as adding on his second year for $4.5 million. So it seems like a fair deal for Miggy, a fair deal for the Marlins. It made too much sense to not happen. Yeah, no, if, at that price, it's definitely a bargain in my opinion. So I guess, you know, just the first broad question before everyone else comes in, is your thoughts on the 2021 season, the good, the bad, the ugly, and sort of just compare it to what your expectations were going into spring training? Yeah, I think you have to say it was disappointing. Uh realistically was this a playoff team going into the season i don't think it was i don't think many people thought that it was but after the year they had in 2020 you'd like to think they would have built on that a little bit and could this have been a 75 win team a 77 win team had some things gone better i think it could have been probably should have been and i think you got to be disappointed that it wasn't uh to fall off as far as they did to lose the kind of games they lost time and time again the way they lost a lot of those games it was frustrating and as the year went on, and when you didn't have Marte, you didn't have Duval, you had the injuries and the rotation in the second half of the season, uh, things kind of spiraled out of control. So hopefully they can get this thing turned around a little bit this winter and get back on track next year. Big yeah, crowd absolutely. coming here. Is this an interview or an intervention? <laughs> <laughs> well, we got a full squad for you here tonight. We have Noah, yeah. we, have Eli, we have John Rodriguez from All Marlins, we have Kevin Burrell, Alex Carver, and we're sort of just going to go around the room and take turns, you know, bringing up topics with you, Glenn. And just one, you know, personal question really quick for me. How is the gig at FAU? It's been a lot of fun. Uh, for those who don't know, I've had the chance to teach a sports broadcasting class at Florida Atlantic University this fall. Uh, it's something I've wanted to do for a very long time. For years and years, I've mentored a lot of high school and college students, aspiring broadcasters. I've worked with a lot of young broadcasters. And I've wanted to get into a classroom on a regular basis. Uh, this year, I had the chance to do it for the first time. I'm really enjoying it a lot. A very eager group a very enthusiastic group, hardworking, uh, and it's been terrific. Looking forward to building on this semester down the road, maybe doing more in 2022. Awesome, awesome. Those are definitely some lucky students. So I guess, Noah, I'm going to hand it off to you for your question for Glenn. Okay, so I have four small questions. Um, uh, oh. The first one. Four small answers all the, coming up. Of, of all the stadiums <laughs> that you've been to, of all the parks that you've been to, which one was your favorite to broadcast from in terms of the the way you were, the way the ballpark staff set up the place and like the view wow. you had from the press box? That's an interesting question. Uh, whenever I get asked about favorite ballparks and favorite cities to visit, I always preface it like this and say, I want to start with cities or ballparks. Where I don't have a personal connection. 
Uh, I spent a lot of years at Fenway Park in Boston. I feel very passionate about Fenway and uh, about the Red Sox. I spent years in San Diego with the Padres. feel passionate about San Diego. Uh, but, but this is a different question. It's not a favorite city. Favorite broadcast booths and locations. I'm going to give you two that might surprise you, two American League ballparks, actually. Uh, Anaheim and Baltimore, where you're really low, and you feel like you're calling a spring training game in both of those ballparks. They're great places to call a game from. With so many of the new parks, you're way up high. You're pretty far back. Uh, you get used to it over time. We're a little bit higher and a little bit further back at Lone Depot than we were in the old football stadium. But you get used to it when you do 81 games there a year. Uh, you don't get used to the height in Washington. You don't get used to the height in Pittsburgh. Those are the two that really stand out. But the two that I most look forward to going to are two where we almost never go, Anaheim and Baltimore. You're, it's like a spring training ballpark, really, location. Okay. Um, so – that's actually a better answer than I ever expected. Um, this year, you had a bit of a round robin with analysts in the booth with you. Um, of all the analysts that were with you in the booth this year, which one was your? Which one did you have the most fun with? Which one? Uh, which one I brought more to the table than the other ones? Which I can't one, do that. Which one? What? No, you know. Here, here's the thing. They all brought something different, which right. is what I really enjoyed about it. Uh, going into the year, it was uncharted territory. So I didn't really know what to expect working with different people from series to series, homestand to homestand, whatever it might be. Uh, people who didn't have a ton of experience in the booth calling games also. So I took it upon myself as a challenge. Uh, and instead of playing quarterback, maybe as I have in the past and working with Dave, where we're each play by play people kind of leading the way in our innings, I felt like I did more of a point guard and rather than scoring, I'm looking for assists and trying to, set up JP or Gabby or Kelly or Tommy Hutton for the handful of games we did together this year, whoever it might be. So each of them brings something different to the table. And you go into it knowing that JP is a former major league catcher, has the, the experience pitching, calling a game, things like that. Gabby, uh, you know, has that Marlins connection first and foremost, uh, obviously a very good big league hitter at all-star at one time in his career, brings something different. Kelly Sacco, whose connection to the players is unique and she can come in with, with individual stories about guys. She's really tied in in the clubhouse like that. Uh, Tommy Hutton's got the history. I wish I could have done more games with Hutt this year because uh, we'd go back so far just as good friends, never having worked together before. But uh, each of them brought something different to the table. And I really enjoyed the challenge of trying to draw that out every night. And it made everything fun and fresh. I might do you know a road trip with Gabby, then a homestand with JP, for example. And you get that different perspective. And so I could ask JP maybe the same question I asked Gabby last week, get a different answer, and answer that might take you down a different road. So I really tried to embrace it and make the best of it. And, and I think it worked out real well for everybody. So um, my final question, I'm going to ditch my fourth question. Um, that wasn't a small one. That was a big one. <laughs> my, 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 my final question is, um, I saw that you went to Palme uh, Miami Palmetto Senior High School. Um, I used to live around the corner from there. My father went there. My father wanted me to ask you, what year did you graduate from Palmetto? 1986. Long time ago. One year after my father. Really? Yeah. Really? All right. Go Panthers. Yeah. I've been back there in forever. And the funny thing is, I get asked pre-COVID, especially to go to a lot of schools and speak and, and talk to broadcasting classes or journalism classes. Palmetto might be the only school in Dade County I haven't visited uh, since probably shortly after college when I'd come back and visit my parents from time to time. I haven't been back to Palmetto in years. I know they've rebuilt it even. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a beautiful campus now. Yeah, it, it was a great school and made a lot of good friends there, had some great experiences there, started my journalism career there, didn't have any broadcasting opportunities there at that time. 
but was very involved with the student newspaper and had a great three years there. Were you ever involved with the, with any of the band members? Uh, no. My, fa my father. Right, I had friends in the band. I my, guess. my father was the drum major. Oh, was he really? All yeah. right, that's great. Go Panthers, all right, Kevin. All did you. you go, did you go to Southwood, or did he go to South? I went. To pri I went school? to private school. Okay. All right. I went to Southwood for what was a junior high, now middle school, not far from there. And Kelly Sacco actually went to both Southwood and Palmetto. Yes, so she did. You got she that. Did. Thank yeah. you so much. All right. My sister's in Southwood right now. It's pretty. Oh, fun. really? Yeah. Uh, when I was there, it was probably only about eight or ten years old. So it's uh, I'm sure changed a lot. Yeah. You know, first of all, thank you for doing this. Uh, second of all, I mean, what's your daily routine when you get to the ballpark to you know get ready for the for any game really for, well, for Marlins game? The thing is, the daily routine starts long before I get to the ballpark. I get out of bed uh, when we're at home, or you know, it's different when we're on the road as we'll hopefully be again in 2022. I haven't been the last two seasons, but when we're at home, I get out of bed in the morning and I go right into my office at home and start working, start preparing for the game every night, uh, reading putting notes together, stats together, looking for stories, anecdotes, things like that, talking to people around the game on the telephone, trying to catch up on latest news and notes everywhere. So I try to do the bulk of my work before I leave for the ballpark, get a lot of that stuff set up. So when I get to the ballpark, I can just write down the lineups, throw my stats and some notes in my scorebook and do the game. Uh, under normal circumstances, when you're not talking about a COVID situation, when you get to the ballpark, you want to be in the clubhouse, you want to be on the field, and that's where you get the most important information you gather on a daily basis by talking to people. And, you know, really have missed being in the clubhouse the last two years. We had some field access this year, but in the past, when you're on the charter with the team, when you're in the hotels with the team, when you're on the road, when you're in the clubhouse every single day, particularly when you're in the clubhouse on the road where there's not a lot of other media, that's where you get a lot of the best information. And for me, it's all about bringing something to the broadcast every night that nobody else has. It's about one-on-one -on -one conversations with guys to get that kind of information, to ask the questions I want to get answered, the kind of stuff that you can't do on Zoom. You can't get on Zoom. And uh, you can't get if you walk somebody on the field and you're in a corral and 32 other people run up. You know, I'm looking for my own stuff. And so that's been a challenge the last two years. But, uh, you know, I've made the best of it and uh, in, in doing some one-on-one -on -one Zooms with people or, or texting with people to get questions answered or trying to get people one-on-one -on -one as best I can. We've done whatever we can these last couple of years. But that's, I think, the, the misnomer. People think the game starts at 7.10, you show up at the ballpark at 6.30. I leave my house about 2.30, but I've been working since about 7.38 in the morning. If the team is on the road, I'll go back to my room after a game and start working for the next day, you know, late at night and work into the small hours of the morning. Uh I just I enjoy the prep. I enjoy the homework as much as I enjoy doing the games, really. And that stuff's you know fun. It's a challenge for me looking to find different things you can bring to the broadcast every night, particularly when you're doing it 162 times a year. Uh, you got to keep it fresh. You know, Glenn, you mentioned the fact, I'm sorry, Kevin. You mentioned the fact that you're doing, you know, these road games back in Miami. How big of an adjustment is it calling games for monitors? Because it can't be easy. It's tough. Uh, it, it's very tough. And the thing is, in 2020, it was a limited schedule, 60 games, and you were just so grateful to have any kind of baseball the way the year started that we got through it and we figured it's going to be different in 2021. We'll get back out on the road. We'll be there with the team all the time uh, when we weren't in 2021. And then all of a sudden you got a full schedule. Uh, now all of a sudden it was much more of a grind doing those games this year than it was last year. And if you think about it, last year, all the road games were on the East Coast. 
This year, you know, we had six straight 10-10 starts on the West Coast at one stretch. Yep. You're getting home two, three in the morning. Uh, that wasn't a lot of fun doing those games remotely, and especially with the way the team struggled on the road this year. Uh, you know, it wasn't a lot of fun doing those games remotely. And, you know, all signs point to being back on the road in 2022. Certainly hope that's the case. It was a big when adjustment. It to, when it comes to the games that you covered this year, I mean, which one was that one game that you liked, you know, covering on the radio the, the most or that one play that was just electrifying for you? Although there weren't many because of the team this season, but I mean. No, but, you know, even yeah. in a rough year, you know, you win 67 games. You, you There are, yeah. are memorable performances, memorable moments. Uh, there's some great walk-off wins. I think back the first games that come to mind, uh, the Trevor Rogers 3 nothing win over DeGrom at City Field when Jazz hit the home run off DeGrom. Uh, I think back to two series uh, the first in April going into Atlanta, winning three out of four from the Braves, taking the first three in that series yeah. and thinking, you know what, maybe we can carry on what we started last year a little bit going in there and doing that against the Braves, uh, winning three out of four at home against the Dodgers in July before the deadline. When you're trying to make that one last push to hopefully salvage the season before the end of July, uh, you know, then things unraveled after that. But th I think there were three last at bat wins in a row against the Dodgers, two walk off wins in that series. Uh, the Pablo Lopez game, the Sunday before the All-Star break against the Braves, where he struck out the first nine in a row. Little did we know he wouldn't see him again until the final day of the season, uh, which was a little bit disappointing. But those are probably the games that come to mind first. The Duval game in L.A. when he hit the three-run home run and then threw bets yeah. out at the plate. Marlins won that game three to two. Uh, off the top of my head, those are the first games I think of. Alex, go ahead. Yeah, thanks, Isaac. Thanks, Glenn, for doing this. It's good to see you again. I haven't seen you yep. in a while. It's, it's good to see you. Um, and I got to I gotta give it to Glenn because, man, like when I'm covering games and I'm going up for a game in Jupiter from here in Carl Springs for spring training, I'm in my car at like 730 and I'm thinking, man, I'm going to be the first person at the park. Like Nobody's going to beat me. I'm going to be the first person there. And lo and behold, I get there at 845 and Glenn's already there doing his notes. So this guy's a master of what he does. He's great at what he does. So uh, if you guys don't listen to Glenn, you need to listen to Glenn, DBH, everybody that Thank puts you. these together, Gabby, everybody. They're spectacular people. So anyways, Glenn, my, my first one um, in what, what you just said about, you know, teaching classes on broadcasting and mentoring young, younger adults um, that want to get into your profession. I just had uh, John Rawson from Beloit, the Beloit Snappers on my podcast. He's their new broadcaster, play-by-play -play guy. And I was asking him, you know, what he did to kind of set himself apart in the industry. So I want to ask you the same question. What do you think with all of the competition that's around and people that want to do exactly what you do, how can young adults that want – to broadcast sports set themselves apart in order to score a job in this field? It's a great question. And it's harder than ever to do it now because there's more competition for these jobs. I think back to my senior year in college, I went to the winter meetings in Nashville to try to get a job broadcasting minor league baseball. And there were a handful of job seekers there, but it was a very manageable number. And then you whittle it down to the number of people looking for jobs in broadcasting was even smaller. You go to the winter meetings now and you can't turn around in the lobby of the hotel because the number of people trying to get their foot in the door and start a career in baseball uh, and in broadcasting, specifically in baseball. So for me, uh, if you know you want to work in baseball, you've got to immerse yourself in the game. You've got to learn everything you possibly can about the sport today and yesterday. Uh, you want to read. You want to ask questions. You want to read books. You want to start talking to people. Uh, and, and when you get your foot in the door and you get that first opportunity, you got to work your butt off. You got to prepare unlike anybody else. Uh, you know, this next season will be my 31st year in baseball, my 26th in the big leagues, my 15th year. 
And I work harder today, I feel like, than I did on day one. Uh, I try to work more efficiently as the years go by. I'm not sure that I've met that goal yet. Paul Severino and I joke about that all the time. We're always trying to be more efficient. Uh, it seems like there are ways we could be that we just haven't quite found yet. But uh, you got to be prepared. You got to bring something different to the table. Uh, for example, you know, every team puts out game notes. Every team writes a media guide. I don't use game notes or media guides. And the reason for that is the other broadcasters calling the game use the game notes in the media guide. I want to have my own stuff. I want to have information that I find interesting. And my hope is that people who are listening are going to find it interesting as well. So I love the homework. I love the prep. And that's something I've really stressed. If any of my students are watching, uh, they're laughing right now because we've stressed preparation. Before they broadcast a game to turn in an assignment, they do preparation for that game. The previous assignment is their preparation for that game. Because for me, it's all about that preparation. And when you do this long enough, the preparation isn't just the day before the game, the day of the game. The preparation is 365 days a year. I'm reading baseball articles. You know, when I wake up this morning, I'll do it again tomorrow morning. All day, all year, you collect things. But the best thing is I got to the big leagues at the end of 1996 season. I broke in uh, with the San Diego Padres. Tony Gwynn was there. and Trevor Hoffman was there. And Ricky Henderson was there. And, and a lot of great iconic names, great players. And you talk to these guys, and you just begin to build up a library of information. It doesn't happen overnight. But to this day, I'll quote Tony Gwynn because something will happen in a game that will remind me of something Tony Gwynn said to me in 1998, for example, but you file it away. And when the right time comes, you have it. And so that's just this lifetime of preparation and of collecting information and material. Uh, and then as you get older and wiser and, and more mature, you realize when the time and the place is to use it, when you're not forcing it in, because you do all this preparation, but it's not about making sure you cram everything into a broadcast on a given night. You got to pick your spots. Uh, there's an old Doc Emmerich line. He does all this preparation every day, and he knows he's only going to use 5% of it, but he never knows which 5% it's going to be. So he has to do all of it every day. And if I don't get an anecdote in about Ronald Acuna Jr. in this game against the Braves, well, it's the first game of a three-game series, and we're going to play the Braves again next month in Atlanta, and we've got six series against him this year, and he's signed a 10-year contract. So at some point, I'll tell the Acuna story. I've got things in my notes that literally been in my notes for a decade or more that I've never used. But at some point, we're going to be in Philadelphia, and it's going to be the right time to use this nugget that I've been sitting on for a while. So to me, that's what is one of the things that can set you apart. Uh, you know, it's the effort. It's putting in the time, putting in the work, developing the relationships, asking questions, gathering a library of information, knowing how to employ it. Because some people are going to like your voice. Other people aren't going to like your voice. Your voice is your voice, though. There's nothing you can do about that. Uh, some people will like your style. Some people won't like your style. Some will grow accustomed to your style over time. Uh, but there's little you can do about that. you got to be who you are. So what do you bring to the table? And it's no different than a player. You know, every guy in the big leagues is really talented. But some guys work harder than others. Some get the most out of their talent. And I think that's what will set people apart in this business as well. And yeah, no, just to feed off that, you you make a great point because when, you know, when we're sitting there in the press box, I listen to the radio broadcast and every time that you're on, you basically write my recap for me, man. Everything that you say, you know, on the broadcast is just relevant information that I'm able to just stick in a, in a game recap. But yeah, John, go ahead with your question. Hey, Glenn, it's been an honor. I want to thank uh, Fish Strikes for making this possible and uh, welcome to the show. It's great um, to be here. Uh, first of all, I want to mention that 
every every single time the Marlins radio Twitter posts, you know, one of your uh, one of your uh, little clips, I, I make sure I post that on my page. Everybody needs to know that you are one heck of an announcer. Your calls are Thank spectacular. Thank you, John. Thank you. Lewis Brinson, Lewis Brinson home run got me fired up when I heard you. Down the line, prevent the double here, which would tie the game. There goes the runner. The pitch is driven in the air. Deep down the right field line. Toward the corner. Fair foul. It is a home run. Lewis Brinson hits it out for a 3-2 Marlins lead. Those and... are fun. Those are fun. You know, <laughs> it, it comes out of nowhere. It's, you know, part of it is... And that ball was down the right field line, as I recall, right? The Brinson yeah, home run yeah. that we're talking about. And so an opposite field home run in a big spot to win a game from a guy who maybe you don't expect it from. Uh, you know, fans are excited. You should hear the excitement and maybe the surprise in my voice uh, because oh, yeah. that's that's what you're there for. So thank you for saying that. I appreciate that, John. Oh, yeah, no problem. And also your uh, Brian De La Cruz walk-off uh, base hit to center field. That was crazy. It was like, I'm back, I'm back, I'm back. That was that was crazy. Chisholm, the winning man at third. The 1-1 pitch. Uh, drive to center field. Back goes Almora. Still back and back and back and off the wall. It's a game winner for De La Cruz and the Marlins. Brian De La Cruz, a long single to center. In from third, Chisholm. The Marlins come pouring out of the third base. They got they beaten the Mets tonight in dramatic walk-off fashion. Two to one in ten. But my question to you is, you know, not many, not many broadcasters get to experience this. Um, how does it feel like, you know, a day like today? You tweeted earlier, 17 years ago, you celebrated a World Series championship with the Boston Red Sox. As an announcer, going through it all from start to finish, how was it like? How was the journey? How was the ride? Well, to be clear, in 2004, when I was with the Red Sox, I wasn't broadcasting. I was the head of public relations for the Red oh. Sox at that time. I broadcast at the end of my time in Boston, right before I came here. But when I went to San Diego initially, I went as the head of public relations for the Padres, transitioned into broadcasting my last couple of years there. Same thing in Boston, went initially as the vice president of communications and transitioned into broadcasting there over time. So I was on the air in 2007 for the World Series when the Red Sox beat the Rockies for their second win of, I guess we'll call it the modern era. They won a bunch recently, uh, but I wasn't on the air in 2004. I was the head of PR at that time, uh, which was, was a fun and exciting challenge as well. Uh, but you know, you have a season like that, no matter what your role is and it's magic. It's like this magic carpet ride that, uh, you know, in those seasons with the Red Sox, you went into spring training thinking it was very possible. You could do something like that, but appreciating how hard it is to do something like that. If you remember in 2003, which was my first year in Boston, the Red Sox lost game seven of the ALCS, Aaron Boone home run, the walk-off shot and extra innings off Tim Wakefield. So you go from that low at Yankee Stadium to then into 2004, hoping for bigger and better things, then falling behind the Yankees three games to none in the ALCS, and no team in history had before or has since come back and won a series in the playoffs after losing the first three. Red Sox came back, won the next four in a row, uh, and then went into St. Louis against a really good Cardinals team. People forget this. All anybody remembers is the ALCS. But the remember the Yankees won a dramatic ALCS from the Red Sox in 03, then laid an egg in the World Series against the Marlins. And, uh, you know, so for the Red Sox to go out and do what they did against the Cardinals in October 2004 to lead in every inning of every game, they never trailed in that World Series and sweeping St. Louis, a good Cardinals team, was pretty impressive to follow up the win against the the uh, Yankees in the ALCS. But for anybody in baseball, that's what the dream is, and that's why you do this to have a season like that where everything comes together 
and you think about the excitement of a De La Cruz walk-off hit or a Bridge walk-off home run, then you put it on the bigger stage and in a packed Fenway Park or in a packed Yankee Stadium, you know, hopefully one day in a packed Lone Depot Park from, from our lips to God's ears one of these years. Uh, you know, it's very special. And I, I'm lucky. I, I went to the World Series with the Padres in 1998. They were swept by the Yankees, that incredible Yankees team that won 114 games in the regular season. Uh, and, and then, yeah, and, and then won two with the Red Sox and hope to win one or more here at some point down the road. Uh, I had been to the World Series in my second year in San Diego and in Boston. It's going to take a little bit longer, it appears, in Miami as we head into season number 15. But one of these years got to get back, and it's a blast. And for you guys to be around, to be covering a team that goes through a magical season like that, uh, it's a different experience, and it's a lot of fun. And I hope for you guys who've never experienced that as journalists, you get that opportunity. I uh, wanted to add on to you, uh, you know, you're a Miami native and I kind of want to tie in with another person who is considered an icon in the city of Miami in terms of broadcasting. What are your experiences with uh, Spanish broadcaster Felo Ramirez? Rest in uh, peace. Knew Felo well, uh, had a tremendous amount of respect for Felo. Uh, the, the fact that he did what he did, I mean, you hate to say it, but literally until the day he died, uh, showed up at the ballpark day after day after mm -hmm. day. Uh, and what I loved about Falo was the rapport he had with the players, and particularly the Latin players, Jose Fernandez, as much as anybody. But they looked out for Falo. They took Falo under their wing, made sure he had whatever he needed, whether it was on the charter or in hotels, things like that. Uh, Falo was remarkable. And, uh, you know, I can't say I ever listened to him regularly. I will say this. I was in Cooperstown when he won the Frick Award because he, he won the Frick Award in, I guess it would have been 2002, which was the year Tony Gwynn was inducted into the Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. And I went back to Cooperstown to be part of Tony's celebration. I was with the Red Sox at that point. And so I was actually in Cooperstown when Falo received the Frick Award as well. And uh, it was a, a privilege to sit right on the other side of the glass from him all those years, first at the old football stadium and then at Lone Depot. And uh, it, it's really sad what happened. But uh, he devoted his life to this sport and to the Marlins. And uh, was a heck of a guy. Thank you, Glenn. Yeah, Eli, go ahead. Yeah, Glenn, I had a specific question. There, there's some broadcasters that it feels like they're two different people during the game because when the home team, when their their team does something great, they get all excited, and when the opposing team uh, does something positive, they they feel like they'd rather be anywhere else. They they uh, they get all down on themselves. What what is that process in, in your mind as while you're broadcasting a game of like trying to find that balance between being, I guess, somewhat objective between celebrating the positives regardless of what team happens? Like, how, how do you uh, like process that, knowing that you're, you're working directly with one team, but there's plenty of incredible plays and moments that could happen uh, from the other side that are still worth sharing with the audience in the right that's, way? That's a good question. And actually, it's something we recently talked about about a week ago in my class. And I played clips of different styles of broadcasters the homers like Hawk Harrelson, who, God forbid, somebody did something good against the White Sox. You know, he was out for blood. Uh, and when the White Sox did something well, it, it was a big deal. Uh, I think if somebody listens to me, they know who signs my paycheck. It's obvious. I get more excited when the Marlins do something good than when the other guys do. But at the same time, I like and respect the game and those who play it. And I think have a healthy appreciation of how hard this game is to play that when somebody makes a great play against the Marlins, there's a certain level of excitement about that. It's not happiness, but it is 
excitement. It is appreciation for what somebody just did on the baseball field against your team. Somebody hits three home runs against you. Somebody hits for the cycle against you. Somebody throws a no-hitter against you. That's a big deal, and you've got to acknowledge it. So uh, do you celebrate it? Are you happy about it? No, but I do think that you have to acknowledge and respect that. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's just it, it lends credibility when, when you, you get excited about what the Marlins do. Uh, you kind of have to, for me, play it both ways. And uh, you can hear a smile in my voice when the Marlins get a big hit. You might not hear the same smile when the other guys do, but a big moment is a big moment nonetheless. And it might be a big moment for disappointing reasons from the Marlins perspective, but it still is a big moment. Yeah, no, Glenn, just speaking of um, some of the legends that you've worked with, I have to, I know you guys didn't do many games together this year, but working with a Hall of Famer like Dave, just how is, I've had like, you know, the privilege of meeting him for the first time this year and his voice in person, man, it's even more mesmerizing than on air because yeah. I've been listening for like 15 years, his voice in person when he's getting an ice cream, like, wow. So just how is it working <laughs> with someone like Dave Van Horn? Oh, it, it's been a, a real thrill, a real privilege, a real honor. I've been lucky. When I was in San Diego, I worked with Jerry Coleman who won the Frick Award himself. When I was in Boston, I worked with Joe Castiglione, who's been a finalist for the Frick Award and has to win it one of these years. But he's a Red Sox Hall of Famer. He's been the voice of the Red Sox for more than 40 years now. And here, uh, you mentioned I didn't work a lot of games with Dave this past year, but I was with Dave every day for 13 years and hopefully we'll work together more in the future. Uh, and it's a thrill and honor. Uh, he... He's such a professional, and he's been doing it a long time. This was his 53rd season, and uh, he's a guy who puts in the work on a daily basis. Uh, you'd think that you got a great voice, you got a great resume, you got the Frick Award, you've done it forever. Well, you can just kind of rest in your laurels a little bit, but he puts in the work on a nightly basis. Uh, he's got so many great stories, so much great history in the game, and the thing that has always stood out to me about Dave is when we travel – to see the people who come into the booth to to pay tribute to Dave, to, to see an old friend, somebody they've known for 30 years or 40 years or 50 years, uh, who it, it might be a club president. It might be another broadcaster. It might be one of the guys who works with the visiting TV crews, one of the photographers or one of the audio guys who work with Dave going back when he was doing TV in Montreal years and years ago, but has maintained a relationship with him and a tremendous respect for him all these years. So uh, it's a thrill. And, and to call Dave a friend, uh, you know, my most cherished times with the Marlins, many of them are an off night on the road on a Saturday. We go out for dinner, have a great steak somewhere, uh, you know, do some sightseeing on a day off, just hanging out with Dave. Uh, he, he's a great partner, a great colleague, but more than anything, a great friend. And it's been a real honor and a privilege to work with them all these years here. Yeah, no, it's been a privilege to listen to you guys. And I know when you guys were working games together, it was sort of spread out that he would do the first two innings, you get three and four, and, you know, up until he would get the ninth. How Was it, like, at any times, like, frustrating where, like, there'd be a crazy ninth inning and you were like, oh, shit, I wish I had the ninth inning to, to, to broadcast? No, you know, it is what it is. You know, we divide the innings up, and that's fine. Uh, and, you know, sometimes the action would be in the eighth inning, and I'd call the, the big hit in the eighth inning. Sometimes he'd get it in the ninth inning. Uh, sometimes there'd be no action for either of us, unfortunately, in some games. But, no, it's just the way it is, and that's the way a lot of booths are set up these days. It's pretty rare in radio to have a play-by-play -play broadcaster and an analyst these days. It's right. usually two play-by-play -play broadcasters who divide the game up, as Dave and I have over the years. Uh, I had done some work with analysts in San Diego and in Boston when I did some TV, but uh, – you know, it had always been with Dave here, two play-by-play -play broadcasters. Mm. And, uh, you know, I, I enjoy that. I love working with Dave. Uh, but like I said, I've also embraced the new reality that we had here in 2021. And we'll see where it all goes in 2022.
Alex, I know you had some Marlins questions or MLB. Uh, no, I wanted to ask one more before we get to that, Isaac, on the broadcasting front, uh, Glenn. Um, no, you did work before your work with the Padres, which, by the way, I lived in San Diego during those years. So those were some fun years for the Padres. Probably the best years ever for the Padres. They were. So they were. Yeah, they were. Fun. They were. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, but, yeah, um, just on the front of, uh, you know, you're coming up in the business, we know you, you worked a, a while with the Rochester Red Wings. I think it was like seven years with them, right? So just like, I guess, the trials and tribulations that you go through working for a minor league team that don't have these grandiose press boxes, sometimes not even air conditioned, they don't have the food, they don't have, you know, everything that MLB has, you know, bus rides, you know, just, just the grind and coming up with a minor league team versus, you know, the contrast now working as long as you have for a major league team. I wouldn't trade a second of my time in Rochester. And there are days I wish I was back in Rochester, even to this day. That's how much I enjoyed my years there. Uh, I met my wife in Rochester, so I, I took something pretty good out of Rochester. Uh, to this day, some of my closest friends are people I work with in Rochester during, during those years, including Josh Lewin, who was my broadcast partner with the Red Wings for part of the time I was there. Dan Mason, who started with the Red Wings the day I started, eventually became the general manager, is still the GM there to this day. And uh, it was a blast. And, and you're right, it was different it was a grind but it was all i knew i was just out of college i literally uh graduated from northwestern a quarter early so i could start with a minor league baseball team right before opening day and got a job and unpaid internship in rochester new york out of the shoot uh went from evanston to rochester i'd never stepped foot in rochester in my life all rochester was to me was a line on the back of cal ripkin's baseball card and made some great friends there, had great times. And when I started out there, it was a bunch of young people just out of college. None of us were married. None of us had girlfriends. We worked 24-7. And that you didn't think twice about it. And you loved every minute of it. Uh, the big question today was, where are we going to go for lunch at the middle of the day? And lunchtime was always a great time with that group of people. Uh, but it was a blast. And you're right. There were long bus rides. We flew, for the most part, internationally. We might have flown to Richmond, then you bus to Norfolk and then fly back home from Norfolk. You fly to Columbus, bus to Toledo, fly home from Toledo. Uh, the hotels weren't as nice in the big leagues. The per diem wasn't as good as it is in the big leagues. Uh, but you know what? It was all that I knew. And most of the ballparks I worked in in those years are no longer standing. And that's really sad to me that old Silver Stadium in Rochester is gone. And most of the parks in the IL from those days are gone. I got into a couple of the new ones that are still around. But uh, they were great years. And I tell people all the time, you may think right out of school you want to work in the big leagues, but I beg people to try to start in the minor leagues and, and do everything, experience everything, uh, pull tarp, make mascot appearances, which is how I paid my bills when I was an unpaid intern. I got paid 25 bucks a pop to make appearances. R.W. Homer, this giant baseball that my arm stuck out of, and I wore baseball pants and big red clown shoes. Uh, it was a sight to behold. I actually, uh, a picture of R.W. Homer is my screensaver on my iPhone, or my, my background, because uh, just, it reminds me of where I came from. And, and I wouldn't have traded a minute of those years, except maybe uh, in the old ballpark in Rochester that had big ramps behind the plate for people to get from the ground level up to the top. Uh, when kids realized that if you hit RW just hard enough and knocked him off his feet, he could roll down those ramps all the way till he got to the chain link fence at the bottom. So uh, I was black and blue for that intern season back in 1990, but uh, they were great memories. And I literally would not trade one second of the time I was in Rochester. And I'll say this, I actually had a couple of chances to leave Rochester 
for major league PR jobs. And I stayed in Rochester because I was so happy there doing what I was doing. Uh, and then finally the right opportunity came along at the right time. And I left for San Diego, but uh, it, I recommend anybody who wants to get into baseball, start in the minors, do everything, sell advertising. You might not want to sell advertising. It's part of the experience, make appearances in the community, do all the PR. I, I wrote the game notes, the media guide, the, the yearbook, all the sales brochures. We all sold advertising. We all pulled tarp when it rained. Uh, the great thing about being the number one radio broadcast when I was elevated into that role was I'd have to stay on the air during rain delays, so I didn't have to pull tarp. And uh, there were some great tarp pulling stories back in those days. But like I said, I wouldn't trade a second of those years. Yeah, that's what everybody says at the minor league level, that it's that team atmosphere. Everybody does everything, whereas yep. in Major League Baseball, you're just doing one job. But, yeah, thank you right. so much. And if you start out, if you come out of college and you get an internship in a major league PR department, for example, you're going to do the clips every day. You're going to maybe write the minor league report on the back page of the game notes. You're going to photocopy the game notes. You're going to pass things out in the press box. But you're not doing all this stuff I got to do literally days after graduating from college at the minor league level. And that prepared me to step into the big league level and do it. Wow, man, you're just making me want to see the jumbo shrimp need any help out there in Jacksonville. There you go, sure. There is some, like, something romantic about minor league baseball for sure. Anyway, does just transition to like, you know, 2022 Marlins baseball talk here. I know Kevin has a, the first question he wants for you. I've got yeah, all Glenn. the answers. i got all the answers. Yeah, Glenn, you know, when it comes to the offseason, which – Throughout this rebuild, I think this may be the one that we've been talking about the most just because of, you know, what's on the line here for next season and, you know, the want, the needing of winning. The Marlins need to win. They want to win. I mean, what's your ideal offseason for, for the Marlins in 2022? Wow. Uh, so you're signing the checks, not me? All right. My, my ideal offseason, if I could do anything for this team right now oh. – uh, all right, we got Miggy extended. We're going to get Sandy extended. Uh, we are going to sign Carlos Correa. <laughs> we're going to Somebody write this sign. Down. Okay, we're going to sign Nick Castellanos. We're going to trade for Wilson Contreras. And, and here's my outside the box thought. When we sign Correa, we move Miggy to second base and try Jazz in center field. Uh, which I don't know. I don't think anybody's talked about that possibility. No, no. Uh, you know, I, I love Jazz's athleticism. I love the speed. I love the power. There were some issues defensively, obviously, for Jazz last year. What does he look like in center field? You know, we talk about needing a center fielder. Uh, it would be great to still have Starling Marte here. Uh, I look back with a lot of disappointment that, you know, Marte and Duval had to be traded. Your offseason would look a lot different had they – gone a little bit further and been able to keep Marte. And I think you're going to look back at that. And when you see what Marte ends up signing for somewhere else, or what it will cost to bring in a Castellanos or somebody like that, I think they could have done better in terms of years and dollars if they would have gone a little bit further on Marte in July. Uh, you know, and Duval, what did he hit his 40th home run of the year last year, regular season or last night, regular season and postseason. Uh, great outfielder, good guy to have on a team. This was a different team without those two guys. And uh, for me, I was a big Marte guy. I said on the air, and I'll challenge you guys with this question. Uh, if you consider what a player did as a Marlin, period, not what he did later in his career, but what a player did as a Marlin, I can only think of one 
player who was a better five-tool guy as a Marlin than Starling Marte. I'll go Hanley Ramirez. In his prime, those, you know, six years of Hanley were elite, elite. But no, you know, Christian Yelich as a Marlin wasn't the guy he became as a brewer. Uh, there were other guys who did it elsewhere who haven't done it here. But Marte changed this team in a lot of ways, offensively and defensively. Uh, and so now you don't have him. And uh, you got to do some other things. But if money was no object, if it was all up to me, I, I'm not guaranteeing all that stuff happens, but that's where I would start uh, because I think you need to improve this offense dramatically. It's not simply a matter of assuming, okay, Brian Anderson is going to stay healthy all year and he's going to finally put together a full season at the level we've seen him play at in spurts, but never over 162. It's not as easy as saying – Young players just get better and better, and Jesus Sanchez is automatically going to take a big step forward next year, or Brian De La Cruz is going to sustain what he did for a good stretch last year. Uh, I think you need to seriously upgrade this offense. Uh, and, again, I mentioned uh, trade behind the plate, and I would imagine you know we're all kind of looking at this the same way. Uh, if you're talking about building around pitching primarily – you got to have that anchor behind the plate. You got to have a guy, and then hopefully you bring him in and you extend a guy like a Contreras, for example. I don't want to be tampering here, but uh, you asked me for my fantasy, and this is it. Uh, you know, you need a guy who can navigate your pitchers through games. It's tough when you know the Marlins went through those stretches last year where where they felt like Sandy Leon was the right guy to have behind the plate for certain pitchers at certain times. You knew you weren't going to get any offense though. And then five days later, well, you can't run Leon out there all the time, so somebody else has to be back there. You got to find that guy, and you put Leon on the mound. Yeah, well, the, the scary thing is, what did Leon rank twenty fifth in the team in appearances pitching wise this year? Uh, that that didn't bode well. But uh, you know, they, they got to find an impact player behind the plate, and that's a hard thing to do because there are no free agents out there. Uh, you know, unless Buster Posey gets the free agency, uh, and I don't see that happening. Uh, you know, so for me. That position is so important in so many ways when you talk about building with pitching. And uh, this team needs a lot more offense. They just – you can't lose the kind of games they lost when Sandy Alcantara pitched this past season as often as they did. Uh, you can't lose all these three to two games and, and four to three games. you got to be able to win a game eight to seven at some point. You can't fall behind three nothing in a second and know the game's essentially over night after night. And so they, they've got to dramatically upgrade the offense. And, you know, I, I think that's where your money goes. You don't have to spend a ton on adding to the pitching. Maybe you tweak the bullpen a little bit. But the nucleus of really good pitching staff is in place. And you got some more arms coming up in the upper levels of the minors who aren't that far off. So if I could do anything, that's what I would do this offseason. What do you think? But, well, hey, the Jazz thing in center field, it's not too far-fetched because, hey, they put Tatis out in center field. So, if, you know what, if he can do it, and Jazz has the speed, definitely to cover that ground. He's got the athleticism. Hard. I'd like to see what that looks like. You know, uh, because center fielders are going to be tough to come by because if they want to go for Brian Reynolds, that's going to cost half their farm system. If they want to go after Sonny Marte, or it's going to be expensive. So that that's not a horrible option, really. I wonder if that's something that they would consider. We'll Noah, see. I know you have a question. Another, another thought I'll throw out there also is mm – -hmm. For me, I said this very late in the season on the air. To me, when you say, okay, they need a, a couple outfielders, they need a catcher. To me, if you're going to really upgrade this offense, you're going to need to make a move somewhere where people aren't anticipating you making a move. And and what I mean by that is people say, well, you're all set with Miggy at short. You're all set with Brian Anderson at third base. You're all set 
with whether it's Lewin or Aguilar at first base or DH, however you do that. To me, there's another move there somewhere. And, and I'll throw this one out there. At this point, I wouldn't rule out the possibility, not that anyone has said they're going to do this, but I'll throw this out there for conversation. What about putting Brian Anderson back in the outfield? If you're down an outfielder, uh, maybe you help that shoulder by not having him play in third base every day and the diving at third base that you got to do on a regular basis. Uh, because he was a game changer defensively in the outfield when we saw him out there. He was also a game changer defensively at third base. And as you guys know, as well as anybody, the talk was always, well, they got all these outfielders coming, but there's not a third baseman right behind them. If you can find somebody else to play third base, I wouldn't rule out putting Brian back in right field with the arm that he has, uh, with the way he played out there. I think you got to get creative. And, uh, and those are a couple of ways to maybe think outside the box. You know, it's funny that you say that because when Brian Anderson was playing right field pretty consistently in 2019, I was just so against it because this guy's going to get injured. He injured his fingers on that netting in the outfield. Now a third base with this shoulder surgery, outfield might should be a viable option for sure, you know. But mm -hmm. Noah, I know you have your question. Um, so other than winning, which is a big other than, yeah. um, how do you think that the organization could go about putting fans in the stands? getting more people to come to games. Yeah, I don't think there is an other than. And the reason I say that is because you look at all they have done over the last four seasons. They, they've done so many great things in the ballpark itself uh, to enhance the ballpark, to enhance the ballpark experience for fans. Uh, they've gotten so invested, so involved in the community. They've said and done all the right things. And you haven't seen the needle move very much. I would have loved to have seen what the ballpark would look like down the stretch in 2020 with the team fighting for a playoff spot and earning a playoff spot. Would you have had 25, 30,000 people a night? I don't know the answer to that. I'd like to think you would have, I don't know, but, but I think it is going to take winning at this point. That's the only thing they haven't done. They've tried everything else. They've done everything else. They've done everything they said they were going to do when they came in, in the community with the ballpark for the fan experience and, and discounting concessions and, and, doing different things like that, uh, I think you got to win. And the question then becomes, is winning once enough? Or with all the history and all the water under the bridge here, do you have to win two times or three times or four years out of five? And what does winning mean? Does winning mean winning the World Series? Does winning mean getting a wild card and losing in the division series? What, what does winning mean? But, you know, you, you go back uh, – They've over the years, and this is even going back to when Jeffrey Loria owned the team, they've taken away every excuse that people had to not come to games. They hated the the rain and the heat at the football stadium. Well, you got a new ballpark now with a retractable roof. Uh, they never signed their core players. Well, they gave Stanton the biggest contract in history. Uh, they need more Cuban stars. Well, they had Jose Fernandez here. You know, they gave Yelich an extension. They, they gave a lot of guys, D. Gordon, over the years. You know, they spent some money uh, under Jeffrey's ownership. Uh, they've got the ballpark now. And the only thing they haven't done, whether it was under that ownership group in the latter years or this ownership group so far, is they haven't won. And they got to win. And at that point, it's up to people to put up or shut up because, you know, people have said, well, when Jeffrey sells the team, I'm buying season tickets. You know what? Not many of those people bought season tickets when Jeffrey sold the team. You couldn't have asked for a better face to come in and a better name and a better track record than Derek Jeter. But people didn't jump on the bandwagon on day one. And I understand that. As they said in that initial press conference, we're going to make some very tough and unpopular decisions. And they did. 
but now, and again, you know, I'm preaching to the choir here. I feel like you guys understand what they've done with the farm system in recent years and, yeah. and the value they got in some of those trades that everybody hated to make, but had to be made because that group of guys was together for a long time and forget didn't win, never even finished 500 uh, when, when you had all those guys together. Uh, and we can talk for hours about what Jose's passing meant to the trajectory of the franchise and how that changed everything. But that's a conversation that's been had many times. But, you know, now it's time for these guys that they've drafted and acquired to really step up as Sandy has, as Trevor Rogers, who was from the old regime, but but as Trevor Rogers has. you got to see some of this young talent come up and make a huge impact. And, you know, Derek said, we're going to be active. We're, we're going to be aggressive this offseason. And now, you know, we'll see how that plays out. Uh, and hopefully they, they can excite the fan base with the moves they make and get off to a great start in 2022. It's not going to be easy when you look at the schedule, including the Braves right off the bat next year. But, uh, you know, let's see. I, I don't think there is, Noah, an other than at this point. It, it's you got to win. And uh, then the question is, is winning enough? Or how much winning will it take? And I'm not smart enough to know the answer to that question yet. Um, Craig Mish, when he was on the uh, live stream a couple uh, months ago, he put forth an idea of letting in kids for free. What do you think about that? I love Having- it. I mean, it, it's it's not my money. Uh, you know, I feel like, hey, if you bring a kid in for free, he's going to bring mom or dad with him or her. Uh, they're going to buy concessions. They're going to pay for parking. I get that. Uh, you know, the, the issue with free tickets from a uh, former front office perspective, I've sat in on marketing meetings and planning meetings. And in San Diego, when we had to really work hard to sell tickets, uh, it was easier to sell tickets at Fenway Park uh, w- when I was there. But you know, when you start giving free tickets, what you're doing is you're devaluing your season ticket. And the lifeblood of this franchise is that core of season ticket holders, some of whom have been with the Marlins since 1993. God bless those people with all that they've been through. Uh, and anytime I speak at a, at a Marlins member event, you know, I, I can't thank those people enough. I can't praise them enough. So when you start giving a lot of free tickets away, one thing you're doing is you're devaluing what your season ticket members have invested in this team. Uh, but, you know, I'm all for that. Or on Sundays, on, on certain days, uh, there are seats – that are sitting empty that you might as well put somebody in. And I've always been somebody who feels like, Hey, let's bring somebody out for the first time. Maybe they haven't seen a game and uh, you know, let's expose people to the product and hopefully they have a good time. They want to come back. But uh, I think what helps people have a good time at a ball game is seeing the team win. And so to go back where we started here, Noah, it's, it's all about putting a winning team on the field and we can talk about all these improvements. We'd love to see this off season and, and down the line, but here's the thing that people often forget you don't operate in a vacuum here and you got a big hole to climb out of to begin with. And the Braves aren't standing still and the Mets aren't standing still and the Phillies aren't standing still. And you know, the nationals are going to build it back up a lot quicker than many people might think. Uh, So you're not operating in a vacuum. It's not going to be easy to get this team to where you want to get it. And that's why we talk about making some bold steps and uh, Hey, whatever you can do to bring people in to expose them to the product. I'm all for it's not my money, but uh, one way or another, you know, you'd like to think you've got a winning product in the field and people will support this team once it starts winning consistently. Yeah, no, it's definitely not our money. And I definitely think that they need to be more creative when it comes to just finding ways to, you know, put butts in those seats. But, you know, I'm going to put you a bit on the spot here, Glenn. A quick question on 
This is year five coming up now on Derek Jeter's, you know, 10 years, last year of his contract. How would you grade it so far? I know there's that one playoff appearance. Other, the other three years, they've been a combined, who knows how many games under 500, with what they've done in the community, with what they've done with the farm system, the major league team. Overall, what would be your grade for the Derek Jeter? Well, I'm going to go back to Noah's line and say, other than winning, <laughs> other than winning at the big league level, you know, they've done everything they said they were going to do. They laid out this plan. And again, I'll say you guys know better than anybody how they have rebuilt this farm system, what it looked like five years ago, what it looks like today. And you're beginning to see those players make an impact at the big league level. Uh, so, yes, you have the one playoff appearance uh, off the field. I feel like they've hit a grand slam and, you know, nobody put a timetable on anything. Nobody expected it to take a decade. Uh, you know, maybe five years is about the right number of years when you essentially start from scratch as they did on the field. Uh, that might be an easier question to answer after this season. Let's see what they do this off season. When they've talked about for the first time, our group is going to be aggressive uh, in trying to make some moves in the winter. Let's see how that plays out. Uh, so it, I'm going to go incomplete, I guess, since you put me on the spot. Uh, but, again, off the field, they've done everything they said they were going to do, and I think they've done even more than you might have anticipated with the ballpark, with the fan experience, uh, certainly the amount of talent they've brought into the organization. They've transformed the minor leagues. But uh, at some point, you got to win in the big leagues, and you got to do that consistently, and that's the final hurdle. And believe me, as frustrated as I am and as you guys are and as people watching this are, Derek is that times a hundred because y'all know the background he comes from. And, and when people have questioned Derek to me in the past, I've always used the line, this guy hasn't lost anything in his life. He didn't come here to get his butt kicked. And, and you know, this is driving him insane. And, and you know how frustrating it is for him. And uh, you know, I think this off season is going to be really interesting. Let's see how it plays out and let's see what happens in 2022. I do feel like off the field, they've, done everything right and now on the field it's really time to start putting the finishing touches on the product here and hopefully winning some games in a hurry yeah no i'm with you glenn i guess the one you know off the field they've been fantastic i guess the one thing where we can maybe just like question a little bit at this point is that first year that they bought their team in late 2017 they told us they're gonna make unpopular decisions but was it the smartest thing to absolutely clean house. I know baseball wise, it definitely was a smart thing to do to trade John Carlo, trade Ozuna, trade Yelich. But you know, from a fan perspective, this new guy comes in here, Derek Jeter, and trades everyone. Was that the best thing to do? You know, fan perspective wise. Well, you know, were fans happy with those guys going seventy five and eighty seven every year? They you know, like I mean, MVP. They saw an MVP caliber season well, from Ozuna. Were they? Were they? Were they packing the ballpark when those no, guys were here? They were not. So it's easy to complain about it, but where were you when these guys were here? Uh, I know where you guys were. You guys were supporting the team. But but in general, where were people when all those guys were here? I think back to the final weekend of 2017 when Giancarlo Jason hit 16. his 59th home run on Friday night and had Saturday and Sunday in pursuit of six. I think we're going to have huge crowds at the ballpark. Where were these? You know, you didn't have huge crowds those days. Um, you know, I, I hate to even say this, but if you go back and look at the numbers – a lot of the talk about how Jose Fernandez packed people in is kind of, you know, looking at things through rose-colored glasses. 
you know, he pitched on some opening days. He pitched on some Saturday nights, had some big crowds. And was there a little bit of a bump for Jose? Yeah, there was a little bit of a bump for Jose. But he didn't pitch in front of packed ballparks at, at Lone Depot Park over the years. Uh, as much as people loved Jose and as much as people miss Jose and as brilliant as he was. Uh, so, you know, and the other thing I'll say about the moves they made, remember they kept Real Muto for a year and, and they tried. They tried to keep Real Muto and, and to build around Real Muto. And you look at how things have played out and what's the toughest position on the field to fill a hole at right now. That's it. And that guy was here and they tried and it wasn't going to get done. Uh, and so they eventually had to trade him. Uh, so, you know, it is what it is. The You look at the Ozuna trade now, four <laughs> years later, I'd make that trade again tomorrow. There's no question about that. You know, ask Yankees fans, would they like to have the Stanton trade back? I bet most Yankees fans today wish they hadn't made that deal. Uh, I might be wrong, but that's my guess on that. And you think about where this franchise would be right now if it was still paying Stanton. Uh, you know, Yelich went on, had a couple of great years in Milwaukee, a couple of not-so-great years since. Uh, you know, Ozuna had the brilliant year last year. Ozuna was a guy, I know just in my personal interactions, who really wanted to be here. Yeah. And might have been a guy to stay here and take a little bit less money to stay here. Uh, but, you know, look at things, the way they played out for him at this point. And, uh, you know, and the way that trades worked out for the Marlins, I, I think you'd make that trade again. So, uh, you know, we are where we are. And now what you need is for J.J. Bleday to build on his strong September and his nice start in Arizona. And you need to get Max Meyer to the big leagues. And you need to get Jake Eater healthy. And you need to keep Pablo Lopez healthy and Trevor Rogers and Sandy Alcantara. And let, let's see Lewin Diaz and Jesus Sanchez break out. And let's see Miggy be Miggy. And let's, you know, hopefully have a healthy Brian Anderson. Uh, and then build around those guys because you've got the beginning of a championship caliber core. You've got the beginning of it. You still have a long way to go. And some of the answers aren't in this organization right now. But, uh, you know, let's see how this offseason plays out. You know, Kevin and I discussed a lot of those trades on on Fish Stripes Unfiltered and just the, that Sandy one that you mentioned, because that turned into, um, yeah, the Ozuna one. You got Jazz Chisholm indirectly out of that it trade. It turned into Jazz Chisholm and it turned into Sandy, your ace and your all-star you know, all yeah. caliber second baseman. And we're almost wrapping up in an hour, so I think we have one or two more questions, if that's okay with you, Glenn. Alex, I've go ahead. nowhere to go. <laughs> yeah, so we're mentioning trades and you mentioned past trades. You know, that was, you know, Mike Hill era. Now we're in Kim Ang era. You got the first... First year under the belt for Kim. And, you know, you mentioned about Derek Jeter knowing winning. And Kim is in that same position that she's worked for a lot of successful teams and bigger markets. And now here she is in South Florida, which is neither one of those things right now, save last season. But, yeah, I guess uh, you can I, I can kind of relate it to what Isaac asked about Jeter, uh, a grade for her, I guess, because you saw a little bit of good. Um, obviously, they won the Amy Garcia trade. And then you see the bad in the Duval trade, which happened at the last minute. It was kind of thrown together. They had already acquired, I think, Peyton Henry. And now they get Alex Jackson, who unfortunately hasn't worked out. And Duval, I think, could have been had, even if he declined the mutual option, under arbitration. So it, it seemed kind of like a throwaway trade to me. So that one is. Yeah. You're muted, Alex. Uh, I think, uh, you know, you look at the Duval trade. If you were bringing back that guy behind the plate, I think you can understand the Duval trade. But when you bring back a guy who not only struggled as Jackson did, but, you know, Kim herself even said, you know, we're looking at Jackson to see if he can be a backup catcher next year. 
to trade Duval to a division rival uh, for a guy who might be your backup catcher next year, that's that's a tough one to swallow. There's, I think, you know, no question about that one. Uh, I was a big Duval fan, and obviously Duval struck out a lot, was not a high average guy, but this team needed some power, and he provided power. Uh, he was a winning type player, a great defensive outfielder. You know, I had known that he had uh, been a gold glove finalist and we'd seen him make some nice plays over these, but until you watch Duval in the outfield every day, I had no idea how good an outfielder he was, how good that arm was. And even in center field, he more than held his own. Um, so, so that opened up another hole when you traded Duval away and for this team desperate for power, you know, and, and when you talk about adding offense, this team that got to the playoffs in 2020, that, was able to win those one run games, won the bulk of those close games. Remember that was maybe like a, a number 20 type major league offense. Statistically, there's a big jump from being 28, 29, 30 offensively where they were this past year and where they have been most recent years to even number 20, where they were in 2020. And you know, those couple extra runs every now and then win those one run games. And, uh, you know, you don't need to lead the major leagues in runs scored with the pitching the Marlins seem to have, but they've got to be better offensively at multiple positions. And, uh, you know, the, the Duval trade hurts in that regard. There's no question about that. But but I think it's hard, you know, to, to really evaluate a general manager based on one season. Uh, we got to give her time. There are a lot of smart people in this organization. Some who are holdovers, many new faces. Uh, you look what DJ Spillick has done, what Gary Denbo has done since they came over. And there are a lot of very smart people here making what you hope will be a lot of really good decisions. But you just you can't grade decisions based on a season or part of a season. And we'll see how it plays out. Uh, you know, it's fair to point out a lot of these decisions now are four years old going into a fifth season. So you can grade those. And we've talked about a lot of those. But uh, it's going to be interesting. I, I can't wait to see how this offseason plays out. And then I'll throw this, you know, curveball at you. Now you got the possibility of a labor situation. And what does that do to everybody? Uh, how does that affect free agency? How does that affect making trades? Will there be a freeze if there's a lockout or a strike that's called? Uh, you know, I guess the best thing you can say in that regard, I asked Derek that question when he was on with us the final day of the season uh, with all the uncertainty. How does it impact what you do this winter? He said, look, it's going to impact all 30 teams the exact same way. When the time comes, we're going to go to work and we're going to work until they tell us we have to stop working. And when you start again, you start again. Hopefully you don't get to a labor situation. That's the last thing baseball needs. It's the last thing this franchise needs right now. Uh, the thought of losing any time in 2022. But uh, yeah, that's another thing that complicates this offseason. How aggressive will teams be as soon as free agency begins? Uh, will players want to sign quickly and make sure that they've got a job before you get into the uncertainty? Will players want to wait? Uh, will owners want to lock guys in quickly? Will owners want to wait? Will MLB dictate what teams should do? Will the Players Association dictate what players should do? Uh, there's a lot of uncertainty out there. And uh, the sooner you get resolution on this, the better for everybody. Yeah, no, there's a picture of Rob Manfred uh, with Will Clark, the uh, president of the Players, Asso Players Association at the World Series. And just like it's just such a hope that this gets resolved because the last thing we need, like you said, Glenn, after a 2020 shortened season, the last thing we need is any more missed time for Major League Baseball. But um, John, I think has one more question. Uh, hey, Glenn. We uh, I want to touch a bit on the bullpen. You know, Kim wanted to strengthen that uh, bullpen a bit more. We we saw guys like Stephen Okert, Zach Pop, 
Anthony Bender was spectacular. Wh- wh- who do you think is going to fill in that closer role? Do you think Anthony Bass gets another shot, or do you think we're going for someone else? It's an interesting question because you look at the impact Anthony Bender made, and uh, he got our attention literally the first time we saw him in spring training and was really impressive all year. I made the point down the stretch multiple times. If you think Anthony Bender may be your closer on opening day next year, let's see him close games out in September. We didn't see that, which leads me to believe maybe they don't see Anthony Bender as their closer to start next season. Uh, you know, could Dylan Floro fill that role for a while? You know, he did a, a serviceable job. Uh, it's an interesting question because do, do you go out and bring in an established closer? Uh, you know, we saw what happened with the Heath Bell disaster in 2012. To me, that's a position when when you're ready to win right now and the last thing you need is that guy to lock down the ninth inning, maybe you go out and you spend money there. But, uh, you know, I feel like they can find an answer. You know, Brandon Kinsler did a really nice job two years ago uh, for, for a year. You look at Marlins history. They've had a lot of guys who for one year at a time did a real nice job as the closer. Uh, we can find that guy. Yeah, AJ Ramos. You know, you went through this stretch where where you had the the Alfonsecas and the Benitezes and uh, some guys like that. Uh, Todd Jones. This is going back a little bit further for a year or two at a time. Steve Ciszek did a great job. AJ Ramos did a great job at one time. Uh, but Leo Nunez was pretty good for a while too. Leo Nunez was good. Juan Carlos Oviedo. I'm sorry. Exactly, the artist formerly known as Leo Nunez. Uh, so to me, you can find that guy. Maybe not find that guy. Get the last out of the World Series. But you can find the guy to get you through 2022, I think, without spending a lot of money. When you don't have a ton of money to spend, uh, and we're already asking them to spend on Castellanos and Correa and uh, acquire Contreras and sign him long-term and uh, extend Miggy and uh, Alcantara. So, uh, you know, I I don't think that's the top priority, uh, finding a dominant closer necessarily in free agency. But, but I think they can just load up on as many good arms as possible. And, you know, they did a real good job, I think, in that regard. That's one area where I think Kim deserves very high marks for 2021 uh, in finding some of these guys. Anthony Bender certainly being the top of that list. Uh, Zach Pop made a lot of progress over the course. There was a Rule 5 guy. Stephen Oker very quietly pitched very well for this team. Wasn't the guy anybody was counting on. Uh, Anthony Thompson. Did, did a really nice job for this team as a starter yeah. uh, and then later pitched in relief. You know, those are guys they plucked out on, on minor league deals in many cases, Rule 5 draft. So uh, to, to me, you can figure the bullpen out. But uh, for me, this offseason is about the offense. It's about finding more bats. Glenn, do, do, you think, do you think, and this is kind of out of nowhere, kind of out of left field, do you think that, you know, with all the Marlins have coming starting pitching-wise, and we know that the, the – the, overall consensus from Jeter and everybody else is that they're sticking to the development of prospects. Like they really want to develop the prospects. They're committed to it. They've said it many times. Jesus Lazardo is my question. You know, he's going to get next year probably to see if he can still stick in, in, in the rotation for sure. Past that, do you think he could be a potential longer term closer candidate for that role long term? It's an interesting thought. Actually, we talked about that on the radio. I'm not sure if it was JP or Gabby. One of them brought up that possibility late in the season. Uh, it's an intriguing thought. The, the scary thing is, though, with the number of guys he walks and as much as he pitches behind in the count, you hate to see that in the ninth inning. If he can corral that, uh, he's got a chance to be a really good starting pitcher, as you saw at times. Uh, you know, for me, he's got to make an impression this spring. I wouldn't guarantee him a spot in the rotation today necessarily to start next season 
Uh, we saw a couple of really good starts, saw some very shaky ones out of him. But I'm encouraged by the work that we've seen from Mel Stoudemire Jr. For me, Mel is the most under-talked about guy in this organization, a guy more people should be talking about. You look at what he's done with Sandy Alcantara. You look at the work he did with Trevor Rogers. Look, look at Trevor from last year to this year. Look at Sandy over the course of his time here, the development that he's had, uh, and, and other pitchers as well. Uh I think Mel's going to go to work with Luzardo, and will it be as soon as spring training 2022? I don't know that you're going to see a different guy, but but I got a lot of faith in Mel getting Luzardo straightened out because you see the stuff is there. It's as plain as day. Uh, you know, there's been talk about Max Meyer. Could he be a closer down the road potentially? Uh, you know, at some point you got to make some decisions with some of these guys. And uh, it's very possible that answer is internal. And again, it might be Anthony Bender at some point in the not too distant future as well. But uh, it, for me, that's not the place I'm looking to spend a huge amount of money this off season. Yeah. I'm definitely with you there, Glenn. Um, I think Kevin has one last question and I think we'll, we'll wrap it up. After. I may have one final one as well. All that's right. all right. Yeah. With the starting rotation, Glenn, I mean, there's so much talent up in the majors and in the, in the minors too. You, you mentioned Max Meyer pretty much dominated triple A the second he entered. I mean, put up a career high in K's and then you have other guys there. I mean, Jake, Eater obviously injured, but, Maybe in 2023, he has an option, an opportunity to be a start. I mean, what would your starting rotation look like? And obviously, we have Sixto, who's injured. Eddie, who put up a okay time in the major leagues. But, I mean, yeah, what's that starting five that you would roll with? Yeah, Sixto is, for me, question number one going into spring training in 2022. Uh, and I would imagine, just thinking about how they've handled players like that historically, they're going to be careful with Sixto, probably not rush Sixto. So it, it may be a stretch to think he's in your rotation on opening day. They might want to take it easy and protect his innings and make sure he's entirely healthy. But if you think about at some point, a top four that includes Alcantara, Rogers, Lopez, and Sixto, that's a pretty good first four. Uh, and then if you have a Luzardo or a Max Meyer, or if Cabrera can take that next step, Cabrera is another guy who's got to uh, go to Mel's lab and, and get to work. You know, there's, you see the stuff. But but there's a lot of work to be done there still. Uh, you know, you can fill in there. And uh, you just for me, you need to avoid the situation this team got into last year where you had, for much of the second half, you had one starting pitcher in the rotation. And you had somebody going two and a third four days a week. And, uh, you know, you just you can't do the openers. You got to have legitimate starting pitchers. And if people are healthy, this team's in position to have that. But it feels like we say that every spring, and we talk about how great the depth is going to be at AAA. And, boy, this team goes 16 deep with starting pitchers when you look at these guys that are running out there in Jupiter every day, but it never works out that way. And this year we were tested 16 deep. So, um, you know, for me there are three locks going into the spring, and after that all bets are off. Yeah, yeah. Don't get Eliezer Hernandez, who nobody talks about, but the guy goes out there, he gives you five innings, and, you know, when he's healthy – and again, you hate saying Garrett Cooper when he's healthy, Brian Anderson when he's healthy, Eliezer when he's healthy. But, you know, Eliezer is a guy who, while others have been developing and struggling and hurt, Eliezer has given this team some big innings the last couple of years. Yeah, he sure has. He's been a vital part of this team. And a lot of a lot of us think what he'd look like out of the bullpen as well, because he has like that incredible slider that would just play up in a limited role mm -hmm. but i think that's it for now i have one final question for you and just your personal favorite call at, for a marlins game your favorite call your favorite moment that you've oh wow the privilege of calling whether it's wow you know yelich had a huge home run in 2017 to tie the game against the mets 
What, which one is your favorite one that you call that where you're off the edge of your seat just saying, holy crap? You know what? There, there are two that come to mind. Well, and then there's the postseason last year with the yes. big home runs, the Dickerson home run, the Cooper yes. home run against the Cubs last year uh, in game games one and two, the seventh inning. Uh, regular season, the moments that come to mind for me, uh, this is going back, Ozuna – Throwing a man out at the plate to end yes. the game against the Mets. Yeah, uh, that was awesome. With Steve Ciszek on the mound, uh, that's one. Uh, there was another I just thought of that now has slipped my mind. Uh, the postseason ones were good. Obviously, October's October. That's in a class by itself. Uh, you know, a lot of Jose Fernandez moments, including his final start uh, against the Nationals. Uh, oh, the, the game. I was thinking of was in 2019. It was a Saturday night against the Braves yes. where the Marlins came back late. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was, I think, a, a walk-off sack fly by Martin Prado mm-hmm. after a game that had gone back and forth in the late innings. And it was with a huge crowd. I think it was University of Miami family night. Yes, and sir. it was one of those nights. I remember doing the game with J.P. and Sebia actually, in 2019, and, and saying this is one of those nights where you can kind of feel like what you hope it's going to feel like all the time before right. too long. And so that's a game that, that I remember pretty vividly against the Braves in 2019. Yeah. Hopefully there are a lot more of those in the not-too-distant future. Yeah, Starling Castro had that huge game-tying double in the ninth of that game, right. I believe it was, with the back zone. And he saw Diaz. And he got thrown out. Did, he, he got, got thrown, thrown out. out. Yeah. Anyone else scores? He saw Diaz, man. Right. That guy just – he ruined the moment. He got thrown right. out of the plate in the ninth. and But it set up some more heroics for Martin Prado. But that will wrap it up for us, for Noah, for Alex, for John, for Eli, for Kevin. And Glenn, thank you so much for joining us, man. We really appreciate the time. We know you're a busy guy, and we'll see you guys next week. Hey, thanks for all that you guys do. Thank you for what you do. Uh, The Marlins take a lot of heat nationally for the attendance, but I tell people all the time, there is a very passionate core group that follows this team on a daily basis, and nobody is more passionate and and does more than you guys do. Uh, On social media, it's great. And uh, really appreciate what you guys do. Keep up the great work. Thank you, man. We all got to grab a beer one day, Glenn. Let's do it.